profits in Myanmar in August. That's many times higher than Myanmar's official estimates. Aid group MSF says nearly 650,000 Rohingya have now fled to Bangladesh since August. From bureaus worldwide, this is FSN. Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world, this is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on uh, Thursday on 101.3 KPCG. Coming up on today's program, some really interesting stories in the news to talk about today. We'll get to those. Also, take a look at a really interesting historical note involving the Middle East, something that happened over there a few years ago, and that ties into also this uh, book that we're talking about this week, History and Prophecy of the Middle East. Today, we're going to look at what happened to the empire of Alexander the Great and how that split apart. Uh, That and more coming up on this edition of Trumpet Radio Live. Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio. This is Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG, and we're online at kpcg.fm, and we have a live link at thetrumpet.com as well. I'm Dwight Falk, Grant Turgeon, here today. If you... A little clearing of the throat there to Sorry about that. introduce yourself to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you wanted me to say more about you. Who's one of those? <clears throat> I just, no one knows who I am. <laughs> Would you give me some uh, attention over here? Uh, actually, yeah, when I came in just a few minutes ago, and, and Grant, you were sitting there in your normal seat, but you have a dark, like, kind of a darker suit on today, and it's a little dark there in the corner. <laughs> I almost didn't see you. It was camouflage. It scared you, me. Were you scared? Because you it really. seemed like you jumped a little bit. I didn't see because I yeah. was looking down. I over exaggerated. Oh, okay. like it. I it did catch me by surprise, but then I over exaggerated. <laughs> okay. I'm not used to seeing that. We just sitting there. <laughs> you didn't seem like too jumpy of a person, so I was no. surprised at that reaction. No, I don't. I I don't. I've never been scared that badly. I guess uh, to where uh, I've had that sort of reaction. I guess, but <laughs> you know. I I have more life to live. I think it could happen at some point. Yeah, hopefully, you're not inviting people to try to scare you now. No, <laughs> no, nope, not interested in that at all. <laughs> it's if you've ever seen, you know, those like say videos where people get scared, or maybe you've done it yourself. Uh, it's always sort of startling what your own reaction is when you <laughs> you don't know what you're gonna do. You know, you just kind of uh, jump or panic or say weird things. It's <laughs> it's very odd. Yeah, I've seen some pretty funny videos like that. There was one where there's a guy dressed in a gorilla mask or a gorilla costume and he hops out of this recycling bin and the guy turns around and just hits him in the face with a one-two. Right. <laughs> Self-defense. Right. Well, that's the danger when people go around trying to scare other people. You don't know what their what their response is going to be. Some people, it's fight or flight, right? Yeah. So you never know which one you're going to get. Uh, lots of interesting stories in the news today to talk about. First one here, this is, of course, this ongoing situation out there in Los Angeles is from the LA Times. They say this fire is a beast. Massive inferno keeps growing despite all-out battle. We had some uh, feedback uh, yesterday from a listener out there that they're experiencing it, and a lot of listeners online out in that area that are seeing this every single day. Uh, It says conditions so far this week have been favorable, allowing firefighters to attack the flames on the southwestern flank of the blaze as it moves west toward the Santa Nez Mountains. 
But the National Weather Service was forecasting sundowner winds blowing northeast at up to 35 miles per hour on Friday night, followed by Santa Ana winds Saturday that at up to 45 miles per hour could steer the fire toward the southwest. So it's going to get windier heading into the weekend here. It says the stakes are high. If the fire moves into Santa Barbara and uh, Montecito, nearly a quarter million residents with and 62,000 structures worth $46 billion would be at risk. So it's some bigger money area there. They're, the firefighters are doing all they can to try to prevent it. They're spraying fire retardant. They're even putting uh, some sort of like almost a tinfoil material around some buildings and structures. So they're doing all they can, but uh, a lot of it depends on the wind. I guess that's the drawback of living in such a nice area too, where year-round you don't have to deal with uh, snow and freezing cold. But at the same time, probably without getting that type of precipitation, you're just open to more and more fires. That's what you're seeing now. It's probably nice to live there, but then you have that risk of all those fires. Yeah, and really expensive structures. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. And I would assume that those very expensive structures are insured, which is nice. But, of course, it still turns people's lives upside down, and then it impacts the insurance industry, too. That's one thing that... that uh, as easy to maybe overlook when you see disasters, whether it's fires or hurricanes, is the even if people are insured, then now I mean the insurance companies they have to stay in business. So I imagine rates go up and so forth. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there over the weekend. They say these sundowner winds. I hadn't really heard much about that, but this uh, firefighter was saying that it is just very difficult to tell which direction they kind of shift, and so with the shifty winds, they have a hard time knowing where to be to battle the fires. Yeah, I wonder where you have to move now to even avoid natural disasters like this. I the mean, moon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have places like California and Florida that are perfect weather all the time. But in California, you have the earthquakes and fires. In Florida, you have hurricanes. Here in the middle of the country, you have tornadoes. Up too far north, you're going to get hit by the next ice age. <laughs> it's like pretty much everywhere. You can't avoid it. And uh, there's definitely a lot to be said about that, too. Yeah, it's it's uh, really quite a situation, uh, and even here in Oklahoma, it's very dry, and there's a lot of burn ban burn ban uh, warnings going on, and so uh, we're not we're not unfamiliar with fires here. Uh, this says as of Wednesday night, the Thomas fire had burned more than two hundred and thirty eight thousand acres and was thirty percent contained. Uh, which I guess means it's 70% uncontained. <laughs> That's not great. It has destroyed more than 900 homes in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties since it began December the 4th near the uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas College in Santa Paula. In its first day, the fire spread southwest toward Ventura and northwest, eventually hugging uh, uh, Ojai, if I said that right, before pushing to the central coast. Uh, with containment lines now protecting Ventura and Santa Paula, firefighters there have been on a seek-and-destroy mission for any lingering hot spots that could threaten avocado groves, fire officials said Wednesday. Avocados are not cheap. They're not mm. going to be any cheaper, uh, especially if the fire gets in there. That's another factor is there's a lot of produce coming out of California, and uh, that's being affected potentially. And uh, and all these other uh, situations going on, so quite a, quite a deal out there in uh, Southern California. Yeah, you could definitely see that as a curse when so much of the nation's food production comes from there. <laughs> it's a pretty devastating, potentially devastating fire that they're going to be dealing with. And I've I've heard some people talking about 
possible causes. Obviously, the yeah. wind is really bad and just it being dry. But there was one story about uh, some homeless people trying to cook in the woods, and that might have started part of it. Another commentator was speculating that some arsonists might get some sort of a sick thrill out of taking advantage of these types of conditions. Uh, so it's a lot of it could even be potentially caused by human beings. Yeah, from what I saw about the Thomas fire, they said it's going to take quite a while to figure out the cause. Uh, they're not sure as far as what I read. But then related, I think, to what you were saying, there's a headline that the, uh, Bel Air wrestles with homeless after encampment fire torches mansions. Mm. California is a weird <laughs> it's a weird place because, and it, we're going to talk about it here in a minute, but you've got really wealthy areas, but then you've got a lot of impoverished areas, and they're right next to each other because of the homeless. So here you have uh, homeless encampments, and they're cooking or doing whatever else, and then potentially starting fires that are burning mansions. You know, the haves and the have-nots, and they're, it's, it's, a, it's, not, uh, it's, it's a, just a strange meeting of two different like levels of society and life. And they're grappling with it out there in those big cities in California. They're not sure what to do with the homeless, and the homeless are right there, even by some of these major companies. Yeah, I think that's that's why it's probably a good idea to to have more regulations about where the homeless are allowed to roam, because you do see that in a lot of more left-leaning cities where it's just like they're allowed to be on every sidewalk or street corner. They're allowed to be along every highway, you know, in, in every, in the middle of every city. And, uh, again, that does bring with it sanitation issues. It brings with it, uh, possible fires. Like in this case, um, you don't really see that too much like, like in Oklahoma city where there are more regulations about what the homeless are allowed to do. Well, it's, it's really sort of, that's where the, the reality of ideology happens, right? Where, People might say, well, you know, what? let the homeless be. It's fine. You know, we can all get along. But then if you live next to them, I don't think most people like that. Or if they're in the parking lot of your company and you're trying to run a business, people don't like it. There's there's problem. There's crime. Related to that, there's a story from TechCrunch today. Security robots are being used to ward off San Francisco's homeless population. And the city... And some people are upset they don't feel like robots should be <laughs> moving homeless people around. <laughs> it's a weird, it reminds me of, I don't know, it's like some sort of a sci-fi show with the robot, security robots. Are, and they, if you see them, they look like just, uh, I don't know, kind of like uh, oh, almost pyramids. Not exactly, they're not pointed at the top, but they're just kind of like that. They have that base and they just kind of roll, roll around <laughs> and try to clear the homeless out. And so and the, now the homeless are even attacking some of these robots. Wow. And so it's, it's, it's like a weird movie, but it's actually happening in San Francisco. Well, that's just one way that they're trying to deal with the effects of the problems that their policies have caused. Uh, they, homeless people, they hear which cities are more friendly toward them, and they'll move across the country to get to those places. It's the same thing with illegal immigrants. They purposely move to cities that have sanctuary policies. It's it's like they're ca causing these things to happen with their crazy policies, and then they're trying to set up robots to deal with the effects. Well, it reminds me of what uh, happened, I guess it was in the 60s or was it the 70s, somewhere around there where they had the big summer of love out in San Francisco and 
people all got excited about that. Uh, the younger generation, they wanted to go out to San Francisco. They even had a popular song about if you're going to San Francisco. So people went out there and they had this dream of paradise. Uh, and then they realized very quickly, and you can see a lot of documentaries on this, that uh, if you're not working, uh, you don't have a place to live. You have no food. You can hang out in the park and listen to some bands for a while, and that's <laughs> fun for a day or two. But then you have sanitation issues. There's always somebody there to take advantage of people. Uh, and it became a, a, a problem because people were on drugs. There were there was no sanitation. The idea that we'll all get along and we'll all share our vegetables or whatever, that didn't work. And so you end up with this cesspool, really, of humanity. And the same sort of pattern just keeps repeating itself. There is there is no, like, socialist dream where everyone just shares. You end up with the problems like they're having with the homeless out there. These are all examples of ideas that are very good in theory. They sound nice. Uh, but whenever you're trying to just uh, accept everybody, be welcoming to all types of people, and you don't consider the practical ramifications, disaster seems to come every single time. But uh, this back to this this uh, robot story here, the homeless, <laughs> the homeless issue they say in San Francisco is thorny and complicated. One could get whiplash at seeing the excess of wealth and privilege juxtaposed with the dire circumstances just steps outside Twitter headquarters on Market Street. You have this wealth, this technology boom, and then you've got the homeless right there. However, the city's homeless uh, are also associated with higher rates of crime, violence, and sometimes episodes of psychosis, leading to safety issues that many feel San Francisco has not had an adequate handle on. So the San Francisco uh, SPCA, which is a security there, has rolled out the use of a robot unit dubbed K9, not to be mistaken with the dogs, I guess, <laughs> from security startup Nightscope a month ago, citing these same safety concerns. The K9 units are also cheaper than humans. One robot costs $6 an hour to use instead of paying a security guard an average of $16 an hour. So the robots are out there. And they're equipped with four cameras, able to read more than 300 license plates per minute. They can move about and keep tabs on the area, noting anyone on a list of those who shouldn't be there. So somebody looks at this data, and then they can go send somebody if they need to to get people out of those areas. Yeah, I guess that sounds like pretty impressive technology, except for the fact that you said that homeless people are, are just attacking the robots. I, it's just such a funny visual. Like they just like savages fall upon the robots and take them out. <laughs> they found, yeah, the, there was one headline where they said they found one. I think it was tipped over and they had smeared feces on it. Oh, no. So it's not a pretty <laughs> picture, but they went after the robot. <laughs> it says uh, already the San Francisco uh, security there said it has experienced a drop in crime when using the bot cop. The same, my, no brutality there. It's just they're just robots. Well, I wonder what they would say if the robots went rogue and started abusing the people too. Pro, profiling them. <laughs> the same might be said uh, if it had increased the use of human security guards, but humans, as mentioned above, cost more, and they also can't monitor twenty four seven or immediately upload what they see to the cloud. So these robots are there all the time. They're uploading their data to the cloud, and then there's some humans looking at it and saying, oh, they shouldn't be there, there's homeless there, there's crime there. So it's it's been somewhat effective, but there's this whole um, pushback against it from even the city saying that they, they want to fine people for using the robots. Wow. I, 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 I'm not sure of all the details of how exactly a city deals with the homeless problem. I know police officers are able to sort of move them to different locations. Um, I'm not sure all the laws about it, but... 
definitely whatever way you could you could have to try to move them out of the main areas of the city at least i don't do you do you know much more about that like what kind of rules are in place in certain cities that have it more under control i don't uh other than i mean they're going to try to keep them i guess you know out of the tourist areas uh, yeah to, to a point just, just the police it's a matter of just the police coming up and telling them to move there's some areas it. i mean there's some areas that you can't stay you can't just say i'm gonna sleep on the sidewalk here mm-hmm. you know they're gonna move you out of there where do you go i they have shelters but i don't know if people want to go to them or if they're overcrowded so every city's got their own way of probably trying to deal with it to some extent but when you think about the homeless problem it's it's about getting people to live a normal life <laughs> and have a job and a home there's a lot that goes into that drugs other problems there's a lot that you'd have to solve to solve the overall issue there yeah and and at this point with cities that are now turning to robots they've already been so open to having homeless people come there that i mean if if it's like anything like la where there's literally hundreds of them on every block that's already so big of a problem that how do you start moving all of those people at the same time it's almost like it's a bit too late to try to start start solving that one yeah it's a really tough situation there but uh anyway they're they're Working with the robots out there in San Francisco, City right now says it's going to find those people using them, those companies, a thousand dollars a day. Hmm. But I don't know that they can, or they're still battling. So this is a company policy with with these robots. Yeah, Ro- companies can buy them sure. and use. Yep. them. Yeah, and, so, and then the city's the city's not behind it, but it is it is helping the uh, just kind of clear them out of those areas. Isn't so. that amazing that the city would not be supportive of some sort of way of controlling where the population is going i mean obviously these cities know that they have a homelessness problem and that people are moving there from long distances to be there and they still don't want to try to deal with it and clean it up yeah it seems like these robots are mainly just sort of like a movable camera Mm. and and data collection i mean they're not zapping people or something like that not yet anyway but it, it is sort of this uh dystopian vision i guess of the homeless versus the robots it sounds like a movie like a bad movie yeah it really does i it's just so <laughs> it's humorous but it's like it's pathetic at the same time that they have to go to this extreme to deal with an issue that obviously came about because of lawmakers who behave like children or who think like children if you make every area of your city accessible to homeless people of course they're going to come there i mean that it, it's not a far walk to get to the things that you need in the middle of the city but if you have any regulations about that, then all of a sudden you prevent hundreds and thousands of them from moving there. That's what they should have done in the first place. Tough situation. Uh, there's a, uh, a new uh, study out as well. I guess this has been talked about before, but it might be something to think about. They say, have a cell phone against your ear. You should consider putting it down. About 95% of Americans own a cell phone. 12% rely on their smartphones for everyday Internet access. And health department uh, officials are saying there could be some problems. They're still debating it, but they're not not totally sure, but something to think about. They say, in addition, the average age when children get their first phone is now 10. And a majority of, you know, you're ready for the Internet when you're 10. (laughs) Let them at it. And a majority of young people keep their phones on or near them most of the day and while they sleep. It says children's brains develop uh, through the teenage years and may be more affected by cell phone use. Parents should consider reducing the time their children use cell phones and encourage them to turn the devices off at night. 
Other tips for reducing exposure to the radio frequency energy from cell phones, and that's the issue, the signal coming from the towers and to the phones and back and forth. Keeping the phones away from the body, reducing cell phone use when the signal is weak. Reducing the use of cell phones to stream audio or video or to download or upload large files. Keeping the phone away from bed at night and removing headsets when not on a call. And avoiding products that claim to block radio frequency energy because they may actually increase your exposure. How weird is that? (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, they're, they're concerned about what the phones might be doing to people, particularly young people. Yeah, my 16-year-old brother actually has the opposite of this issue where he's had a dumb phone, I guess you could call it, and he's lost it more than once because he just never, ever uses it. The only purpose of it is to call mom to pick him up from baseball practice, but now he's 16 and he can drive, so it would also be helpful to have a phone to be able to contact someone if something happens. But again, he keeps losing it all the time. I actually feel better about it that way, just knowing that the smartphone is so addictive and and. If you could avoid having one, it's probably a good idea, especially at that age. There is an interesting story. Uh, just the the cell phone was a small part of the story, but it kind of ties in a, a little bit. There was there's a uh, <clears throat> a uh, government official. I want to say he was in Kentucky. Uh, committed suicide uh, yesterday, I think it was, and uh, sexual assault allegations. And apparently, he he put up, I guess you'd consider it a suicide note on the internet, and somebody saw it or people saw it and they contacted the authorities and said, you better find this guy. They didn't know where he was, but they pinged his cell phone. And that's how they found him, but it was too late. Wow. But they, but they just needed to know where he was. And so because of his smartphone, they could find him instantly. Yeah, I mean, I guess in that situation, that might be a good thing. Um, at other times, you probably would not want people being able to access that information. It, it's like technology always has. There are pros and cons in every situation, uh, no matter what might be going on. So um, I guess in that case, it would have helped to access that a little bit sooner. Technology, that's like anything with technology. Like there are facets of it that are good, and then there are facets of it that are bad. You know, and it's just a matter of kind of navigating that. Related to just thinking about young people and phones and development, <laughs> this is a bad, bad news. Nearly one quarter of teens are using pot, they say. <coughs> wow. 25%. Of 8th, 10th, and 12th graders surveyed, 24% said they've used marijuana in the past year, according to research from the University of Michigan. <laughs> That's th- those that would admit it. Fewer high school seniors disapprove of using marijuana and see great risk in smoking it uh, occasionally. Uh, sorry, they disapprove of use, yeah, of it. So there's uh, some that don't want to do it, but, but more are doing it. Students are vaping marijuana and nicotine. You probably have seen those whatever those things, vapors, I don't know what those (laughs) things are. Critics warn it's uh, not just the flavors, but the sleek and discreet design of some of the e-cigarette brands that are attracting kids. So as they try to get kids away from cigarettes and those other problems, now they're all, uh, many are jumping into marijuana usage, which is smoking. It's still smoking, or maybe they consume it other ways, but mainly smoking. And it does the same damage as actually smoking. And then it's a more powerful drug as well. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's not really that surprising seeing a lot of teens out in public now. I mean, it's it's like the fast track to becoming a, a loser at life. If you if you start getting getting into drugs, especially so early, I mean, how how are you going to have any ambition to succeed? I mean, that's one of the things that is glorified about marijuana is that it makes you chill out sometimes to such an extreme that you don't ever 
develop much ambition at all. They're doing that from a young age. There's no stigma about it. There's no attack ads against it on TV like there always are about tobacco. So, yeah, why not? It's pretty much only glamorized. You just even think about the uh, expense of doing that. You know, if you're these young kids and then they're, well, maybe they're going to college. I don't know. But uh, to to be that young in life and have this habit that costs you a lot of money, just just from that standpoint, I mean, obviously there's a lot of other issues too, but that's one of the things that they would talk about with people that were uh, smokers is besides the the uh, toll it takes on your health, it is expensive to, to keep that habit going, and you can't stop it because you're addicted. And so, you know, what, where are these kids getting the money from, and where are they going to get the money? And it's so funny because when you people are involved in these types of drugs like a marijuana, like you said, it they just chill out a lot. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot of like work ethic. <laughs> so you've got this habit that requires money. You're on something that really incapacitates you in a lot of ways. There's going to be problems there, obviously, and there already are. And I'm, I think they're going to get worse. Yeah. I mean, that that just sounds like the perfect recipe for homelessness, doesn't it? If you If you are spending a lot of money on your addiction, but you don't have a job that can give you the the money that you need to spend on that, uh, it's going to be pretty difficult. You're not going to be able to hold down a job too easily if you are addicted to a certain type of drug. I even saw a professional athlete came out recently and said he had been addicted to several higher level drugs, I guess, but for so many years that he's only just now about to get out of debt. And this is a professional athlete, not one of the richer ones, but still, uh, even with a profession like that, he is still digging his way out of the debt that he accrued just from being addicted to drugs. Yeah, it's uh, and plus, you know, I, I I was talking to somebody recently that owns their own business, and they were, I was asking them about you know, like who they hire and so forth with because it's younger people usually, and and they were saying that you know uh, <laughs> a lot of people are just quite frankly worthless. Yeah, uh, because they just don't want to work, they don't want to show up, they can't be trusted. Just the work ethic isn't there. And that's not everybody, but if you're looking at just general trends, that's the case. And so if you're if you're trying to hire somebody to do a job for you, particularly if it's in, like, say, the manual labor field where it's physical work, you have to be careful or you can get hurt. You don't want somebody showing up that's, first of all, not a good worker, but then they might be on drugs too. And that was another thing that this gentleman mentioned. He said people, they're on drugs. Right. They don't want to work. And they can't, and, and it would even be dangerous for them to do so, to work, because of the, the addiction and the impairment. Because it does alter the mind. That's what people try to gloss over if they are proponents of marijuana. It's a mind-altering substance. It's it's very unsafe to do something like that and then drive a vehicle or operate machinery. Uh, a lot of other jobs like that where you could be a threat to yourself and others, it's a mind-altering substance. I don't know how much more... Uh, clear that needs to be before people stop trying to support this being a, 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 a uh, apparently a, uh, an acceptable habit. Yeah, it's uh, one of those things that just keeps uh, uh, growing, and it, it grows among the young people. Anything that they make legal, quote-unquote, for the adults, you can be sure the young people are going to be doing it. And then, how do, you know, this is the next generation coming up that's going to go to college and become the professionals at whatever they're doing. Um Boy, it's it, life is hard enough without throwing a, like a, a, a rock around your feet that you got to drag with you some addiction through life. Yeah, it's extremely disturbing when you think that the two main things associated with the next generation are probably marijuana and smartphones. I mean, those are 
both of those alter the mind and both of those take away ambition. They don't contribute to someone being a productive member of society, and yet our young people are hooked on those things. It's uh, it's interesting. There, there's another write-up here that I found very, very fascinating. Uh, it's, it's a it's a pretty, uh, I guess you could say it's a heartbreaking uh, article in some ways. Uh, and it was on Yahoo, uh, quite lengthy about the school shootings that have happened over the past, well, I don't know, it's been, what, 15, 20 years now. And it says, it says the title is School Shooting Survivors United by a Chain of Grief and Hard Lessons Passed On. And so the article highlights how these shootings affect the survivors for the rest of their lives. That's something that's easy to sort of forget about. You know, uh, school shootings in the news and then people move on. But there are people that didn't die, but they lost family or classmates or maybe they were injured themselves. And these communities try to get back to normal, but normal for those communities, it it seems to never really come. Uh, In a lot of these cases, when they look at the history of what's happened after these school shootings, there's a a lot of divorces. Mm. Uh, some families just move. They can't be there anymore. There's lawsuits filed because uh, victims are suing people. Um, and then a lot of times money pours into the community from uh, charities and so forth. And then there's lawsuits. Who gets the money? And so there's a lot of problems, <clears throat> not to mention just uh, the stress, like the post-traumatic stress, I guess if you call it that, where uh, in the case of, I think it was Columbine, the the fire alarm was going off the whole time of the shooting. And uh, there are people that were there in that situation and other situations similar to that to where if they're in a class now years later and a fire alarm goes off, I mean, they, they melt down. Wow. Like they just, their, re, their just natural reaction to it is so difficult. Uh, former Columbine principal DeAngelis uh, still worries about most of the Columbine class of 1999, students who graduated on May 22nd, a month and two days after the shooting, then dispersed to college and work. He said there wasn't support for them. Uh, the kids and staff who returned, it was tough, returned to the school there, he said, but we had each other. The ones who left, they would be sitting in class and the fire alarm went off and they found themselves having a meltdown and they weren't sure why, or they'd be doing well, and then five years down the line, they would lose it and uh, need to seek help and counseling because something like that just shocks the system so much that it it affects these people for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it has to be a situation where pretty much any night they could be having really vivid, uh, accurate nightmares about the situation or any anything they see that... Uh, in everyday life that might be distantly related to the day of the shooting could bring back memories of that. It's hard to even understand how someone could integrate back into society after going through something like that. Yeah, they say memories continue to be triggered by all the senses. Uh, For one particular person that was in a school shooting, uh, it was unseasonably warm the day that they got shot. And so it was in the spring, I believe. And so when there's that type of weather again, they kind of start having, they start thinking about that. Uh, and they just, like you said, are, their memories are triggered by all kinds of just different things that you wouldn't think about, but because of the experience, they're in a really difficult situation. And so it's a really interesting write-up, but I guess the thing uh, that really stood out to me was the title of the article, because it said, the title is School Shooting Survivors United by a Chain of Grief. And it made me think about Ezekiel 7.23, which says, Make a chain 
for the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. I mean, they are, it is a chain now. And you can look at whether it's school shootings or just shootings in general or any sort of violent crime or anything. Yet you can make a chain, go from one part of the country to the other, and how many people are touched by it and affected by it. That that chain goes all around because, as it says, the land is full of bloody crimes, the city is full of violence. It's almost like at some point, uh, because of a prophecy like that, it's saying that everyone's going to have a lot in common with each other no matter where we're living in the nation pretty soon because these activities, these these tragic events are going to be taking place all over the country and everyone's going to know what it was like going through that and losing family members and friends. It's a really sobering prophecy and, and hearing that in the title just brings that to life in such a in such a way that I've never even thought of before. Yeah, the the people that have experienced the the school shootings uh, and and it could be other shootings as well. They're focusing on the school shootings. Every time there's another one, and there always is, it seems like they are quick to get on the phone and call people from that community, especially like the principal will call the other principal, and they'll say things like, look, you won't remember anything I'm saying to you now. This is going to take a long time to process. I've I'm, I've been there. I am there. And they just try to offer help, which is really nice. But they said they never really put the D on recovered it's always a matter of you're in the process of just mm. the recover stage. Wow. Yeah. I, that's really uh, sobering to hear. And, and, and just to think that these are people who were trying to educate themselves, prepare themselves for their future. And then some people there don't even have a future anymore, at least not in this physical life because they were killed. It's quite a paradox there um, it, to have a shooting in a school it does take away the future that they were preparing for. Even uh, there was one <clears throat> lady that I uh, believe she was, well, she was affected by the Columbine shooting in some way, whether she was injured herself or a family member. But anyway, she was involved. And when she heard about the the one in uh, a Newtown where the, I think it was, it was over 20 first graders shot, even that, like she, again, the family said she like when she heard the news like they thought they were going to lose her because she just almost lost her mind over it because of all the pain that she felt and then seeing that happen again you know these things really really affect people in ways that uh it's going to take god himself to heal because it's it's so traumatic that's so true and it does help a lot to think about it on a personal emotional level uh we see these things on the news and thankfully most of us don't experience them happening right now right up close in our own lives but these are real people who have to try to recover from that somehow and like you said only god can heal yet at the same time are these people turning to god is that really how people are trying to cope with what has happened if you're trying to go about life without that greater hope and, and try to recover from an event like that without understanding what the future really holds it can be really discouraging and it's almost like you never get over it yeah, and there are a lot of the examples in the article. I mean, people are trying; they are going to to a religious belief in some ways. They might have their their way of going about that. And but there's a really good Kia David about just that topic recently about say the shooting down in Texas or whether the hurricane things like that, where there's these huge disasters or tragedies. And there are people that say, well, we need to pray so God can heal us. But they, a lot of times they leave out the fact that we have to turn to Him. We have to change our ways. And that, again, is what 
the other side of the uh, equation that's being ignored a lot of times. Traditional Christianity is leaving out uh, the real answers that we need to be considering right now. Uh, like you said, there's a reason why these uh, tragedies are taking place, and it's part of God's correction. People uh, in traditional Christianity think that uh, only a cruel Old Testament God would do something like that when it's clear throughout the Bible that God uses these things as lessons for us. And then as well, in traditional Christianity, there's so much uncertainty about the afterlife that these people whose relatives are being killed have no idea when they're going to see them again. A lot of them believe that maybe they'll be in heaven, but if they also believe in hell, which what if some of their relatives end up in hell? That's not the most encouraging, hopeful thing to think about. Lots of uh, questions there. Uh, it ties in also a little bit to the Trumpet Daily Radio show today with your host, Stephen Fleury, talking about just a few things, including just how upside down the world is today and uh, just the onslaught, the absolute onslaught of uh, pornography. And after uh, some of the school shootings, some of the parents actually tried to sue uh, video game companies, uh, por- pornography companies. Any any of these companies that were influencing some of what was happening there, they didn't win. <laughs> Those were pretty much tossed out. But but again, you have to stop and think about, okay, well, you know, what what are we doing as a society? It's easy to think, well, it's just a couple of people that are just out there odd. And and that might be somewhat the case, but you know this uh, as is talked about in the Trump Daily Radio Show, just how how popular some of this pornography is, especially now because you can just get it online. If you have to go get the physical copy, there was still a lot of that, but it was harder to go get. Now with it being online, it's just booming. And what is that doing to people's minds? And it's really everywhere on the internet. It's been called many times the engine of the internet because I believe it's like a quarter of all of it is pornography and even if you're not looking for it i had an experience with it the other day there was i went to a conservative commentator's twitter page and he had this retweet and it seemed pretty nice i didn't know who he had retweeted but it ended up being some porn actress and then later on i was reading an article and then obviously they have all those links on the side as well on these articles about some other issue about that so twice in the same afternoon you see you see the internet like directing you toward those type of outlets it is unbelievable how how much those things tend to even mix in with every other part of the internet that you wouldn't think you'd find it right and that's where you have to be well careful obviously personally but even with children because yeah. you know if you if it, you said well you know to your your younger person you know hey uh read this news article is pretty interesting well but where is it? Where did they put the article? Because like you said, there could be some stuff there that you just shouldn't see. You may not even be looking for it, but they're trying to pull you into it and, and get you involved in it. So it's a, it's a terrible scourge, and uh, that's uh, talked about somewhat on the Trumpet Daily Radio show today. That Again, the, the weird juxtaposition, right, between all this talk of sexual harassment and so forth and then the glut of pornography. <laughs> it's uh, It's pretty obvious, I think, where it's all coming from, but yet we don't want to solve the problem there and you mentioned how those cases against these video game companies and pornography companies were just thrown out it just goes against the very basic common sense notion that what you put in your mind actually does influence what you do that's such an obvious point that our people just are not 
acknowledging because on the one hand, like you said, we have all these sexual assault allegations, yet we continue to glorify the use of pornography. And it's almost 40% of people in this country now think it's actually moral to use that. It's a, it's a great point about, you know, what goes into your mind does come out in some way in behavior, you know, for those that would say, well, I don't believe that. Well, what about, it's the same as with diet. Can you have an atrocious diet and think that somehow you'll be an Iron Man? I mean, I think we're smart enough now to realize what you put in your mouth is going to affect the rest of your body. Well, what you put in your mind is going to affect the rest of your your actions, your attitudes, your mentality. And yet they try to say it's not not as influential as it is. Yeah, and yet there's so many examples that that contradict what they believe about that. I mean, there have been shows about serial killers and then people go out and try to actually do the same thing as what the star of that TV show did. Or there's that, there was that play in New York city, uh, I think in central park where they were assassinating someone who looked exactly like president Trump. Uh, do, do you really think those people are, are not trying to send a message by, by doing things like that, that, that show Homeland is now all about taking down a corrupt president Though they are sending messages, and probably those people making shows and entertainment like that wouldn't be too upset if someone actually carried out what they were saying. It's uh, it's uh, interesting. What you put in your mind, it does affect you for sure. So that's a good thing to remember, and uh, make sure you check out that Trumpet Daily Radio program today. Uh, replays throughout the day here on KPCG, or you can get the uh, podcast at uh, the Trumpet or KPCG.fm. And it is important even there to to understand that uh, because that they do throw out cases against the pornography companies and the video game companies, you see that those outlets are not going to be held accountable for what they produce. That's where personal responsibility comes in. It's it's on every individual to make sure that we avoid those types of outlets. Uh, the government's not going to hold them accountable. Yeah, it's a terrible. Yeah, there was a story the other day about somebody that's involved in one of those industries, and uh, they committed suicide. And there was a write-up about it, and they said it was because they were bullied. And I thought, well, pretty pretty bad lifestyle too. Mm-hmm. That might might play into it. I don't know all the details, and it doesn't you know it's not worth uh, trying to figure it out. But again. You can't ignore certain lifestyles and then have bad results and then try to come up with something in the middle and ignore the fact that eh, you're living pretty rough, though. We have a confounding set of priorities. There is that that young boy from Tennessee who had that video about how he was getting bullied at lunch and people were pouring milk on him and everyone comes out and support and says how anti-bullying they are. It's like bullying is at the top. That's like the worst thing you can do, yet uh, people's lifestyles making destructive choices about what we put into our mind is completely overlooked all of these things are bad why can't we just acknowledge that every one of these issues we're having uh they stem from evils they they're they're coming from a bad place we we can't just say well this evil's worse than that one because that's what i think and that's what i say well yeah i mean and the example of bullying is a good one because it's bad it shouldn't happen but if some if if a company that's trying to make money is trying to sell uh per, perver- perversion to you or to your family uh that will cause you all sorts of problems in life that's not bullying yeah. for a profit right of course it is or if they're trying to get you hooked on drugs that's not bullying 
<laughs> of course it is. But somehow that's a disconnect there. Yeah. Uh, today is the 14th of December. Interesting thing that happened on this day in history. Uh, 2003 on this day, you will probably remember this, President George W. Bush announced the capture of Saddam Hussein. They captured him the day before. Remember the video of him being pulled out of the spider hole, as they called it? And uh, so that uh, was sort of the end, I guess, officially of his reign, though, he, of course, he was in hiding for a while. Uh, in the early 1980s, uh, Saddam was involved his country in an eight-year war with Iran, which, which is estimated to have taken more than um, a million lives on both sides. He is alleged to have used nerve agents and mustard gas on Iranian soldiers during the conflict as coalition, um, oh, as well as chemo- chemical weapons on Iraq's own Kurdish population in northern Iraq in 1988. So they always talk about the fact that they don't think he had any weapons. Well, he used them. <laughs> <laughs> so he had something going on there. And uh, again, now that he's out of the way and his uh, his reign is out of the way, you have Iran coming in as the king of the south. That That really does highlight two important points about foreign policy, especially for America. On the one hand, we do have a responsibility to topple these types of leaders, if if possible, if they're oppressing their own people and we have the power to stop it, why not? But at the same time, when you take someone out like that, you can't just leave a vacuum, which is what America ended up doing. And now Iran, which has always been the real threat in the region, has more power than ever. Yep. And that was, of course, uh, prophesied in Daniel that there would be this king of the south, and then uh, that king of the south was identified uh, well over 20 years ago by trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Fleury as being Iran. And uh, and those that are working with them as well. So Iran, though, as the chief. And so uh, that's a really interesting um, historical note, and it does tie into prophecy. We are looking this week at a history and prophecy of the Middle East, and uh, it gets into Daniel 10.10 10 through 12.4. That's the longest single vision in the Bible, and God revealed it to Daniel during the third year of the reign of Cyrus the Great, around 535 B.C. And so as we've been mentioning, the thing that's so amazing about this this long vision, this prophecy, is that Daniel talked about, uh, or he gave a prophecy, God gave it to him, of what would happen there with nations, and a lot of it then gets to the Middle East. And some of that has already happened, some of that history has happened, and then there's more to come yet, which is, uh, we're looking at all of that this week, and we're today we're going to look at Alexander's empire being divided. <coughs> I was trying to keep that cough in, I couldn't do it. It had, it had to come out, and that was the time to do it. <laughs> Uh, the prophecy uh, given to Daniel throughout the book, uh, not just a specific one, but it go it does cover with the Daniel image of those uh, four world ruling empires of man, uh, which in and of itself is interesting. But the reason it's exciting is it leads into the kingdom of God, which is the what we all need to have happen and to, to come here. It says first, of course, was the Chaldean Empire, then the Medo Persian, then Alexander's Greco Macedonian, and finally the Roman Empire. So today we're looking a little bit at Alexander's uh, empire, and it was divided. Uh, What was left of the Persian Empire was conquered by Alexander the Great. And then we come to Daniel 11, verse 4, which says, And when he, speaking of Alexander, shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. So when he died early, 323 B.C., he was only 32, his uh, relatives did not take over the kingdom as would often happen. Instead, his kingdom was divided into four parts. Each part was ruled by one of his generals. So he didn't have any uh, any of his uh, posterity take over after him. Look how specific that verse is. That's just unbelievable how 
um, you can have a claim like that, and even throughout the whole chapter, it has so many details about all the four ruling world ruling empires. Yet you have critics who just try to say it was all written after the fact. That's easily uh, disprovable. Look at that. He, he it says he was cut off pretty much at a time when it was least expected that would happen, and then he wouldn't pass it on to relatives. It's exactly what happened. It was. It even says it's going to be divided into four parts, and that also happened. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and historians that are good uh, and are honest, I mean, they have to admit that, yeah, I mean, this is this is exactly what happened. And uh, a historian by the name of Myers, he's quoted in this booklet on history and prophecy of the Middle East. He describes a fragmented state of the empire after Alexander's death like this. He said, besides minor states, four monarchies rose out of the ruins, exactly like Daniel 11, verse 4 says. Their rulers were Cassander... Uh, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Nicotar, and uh, Ptolemy. I need to improve my uh, Greek. <laughs> <laughs> who, who had uh, each assumed the title of king. The great horn was broken, and instead of it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And that's interesting because Myers here references Daniel 8.8 8 in his last line there, which says, Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, for it became, uh, for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. That's exactly what happened to Alexander's empire after he died early, at the age of 32. His four generals take over, each taking a part of his uh, empire. And even the, this historian has to recognize that uh, that's exactly what Daniel said would happen. Yeah, especially that part about when he's at his strongest, he's broken. That doesn't, that can't be talking about some sort of a military defeat. If he's the strongest he's ever been as the leader of the world ruling empire, no one's knocking him off that perch. It had to have been a premature death, and sure enough, that's the way it happened as well. Uh, no one would have seen that coming back at that time when, when he's just starting to topple empires. Uh, for him to basically have this issue where he couldn't stop partying and he ended up killing himself for it in his early thirties. Uh, that's about as un- unexpected as it gets. Yeah. And that's, if you, if you were to think about when somebody would be strong in their life, even just uh, physically, that would be at mid thirties. Yeah. That's probably, of course I'm past that. So I want, I want to believe it's further down the road, but <laughs> <laughs> probably mid thirties is uh, about where you would be your strongest. And so, and he was broken as it says, and uh, Daniel wrote this prophecy 200 years before Alexander's empire was divided among his four generals. And I'm sure there'd be people that debate that, but you can go prove that. Uh, 200 years uh, ahead of time, and he knew that this, or God gave him this vision that it would happen. So really astounding. And uh, just the imagery, too, is great, because even even if uh, you were thinking about something that happened uh already and you knew about it and you thought well how am I going to write about this to describe it accurately that'd be really hard to do right but the imagery here is great if you don't understand uh, what it's referring to it seems sort of odd like what a goat and then the horn breaks and there's four but when you go and you look at the history then it all makes perfect sense yeah that that's a really uh, like a poetic descriptive way of writing as well to characterize every empire as like an animal and, and the different traits of the animal play out the exact way that the empire did i you have to commend daniel's writing style there just just to make it come alive the way he did 
So the question then that we just want to look at briefly here is what uh, what about those four generals who each ruled a part of Alexander's empire? What happened to them? Well, uh, there's two that are more significant than the other two, but we'll take a look at uh, all of them here. Cassander was king of Macedonia from 305 to 297. Uh, his ruthlessness toward Alexander's family was partly dictated by political considerations, but his personal hatred for the dead king was evidenced by his rebuilding of Thebes, which had been leveled by Alexander. Uh, he also murdered Alexander the Fourth and Roxana, the son and widow of Alexander the Great. So uh, that's what happens, right, in, in empires of this world, particularly those, some of those Gentile empires, is when somebody, when the ruler goes, the family a lot of times gets knocked out too, unless they, they knock out everybody else. It's, it's always a power struggle. And in this case, Alexander, uh, who was king of Macedonia and took that part of the empire, he made sure to get rid of his competition. And you even mentioned yesterday one of those Persian kings killed his own brother. That's just inconceivable. Yet, if you're talking about so much power that a leader could take by killing a relative, uh, probably more people than we'd like to think would take that opportunity. This, uh, and yeah, this happens in almost with every case almost. Uh, Lysimachus, if I said that right, if I didn't, that's, that's, good. that's what I'm calling that's very good. <laughs> <laughs> was one of Alexander's bodyguards. He was another one here that uh, took part of the empire. He was a bodyguard during the conquest of Asia and in the uh, distribution of uh, that followed some of those regions that were given. Uh, Alexander's death in 323, he was assigned to govern Thrace, occupied there for many years in wars against the local peoples. He took a little part in the struggles among Alexander's other successors in Greece and Asia, so he was kind of occupied in his spot there. The last period of his life was darkened by the intrigues of his third wife, <laughs> daughter of uh, the king of Egypt. In order to gain succession for her own sons, she had her husband execute his eldest son on a charge of conspiring with the Syrian, Syrian king to commit treason. So, again, you see this. I mean, can you imagine that? You, uh, your third wife convinced you to kill your oldest son. Wow. It, that uh, it, Just a lot of nasty things going on there. Yeah, that's brutal. And uh, I was just about to say I like this Lysimachus guy a little bit more than Cassander. But now that you mention it, that, that was a pretty uh, condemnable act that he committed there. And just because his wife tells him to doesn't mean he has to do it. It's pretty crazy that you would commit a murder like that just because um, you're trying to appease a spouse. Those two are the weaker of the four generals, Cassander and Lysimachus. And uh, the other two, those are the more significant ones, especially in how they set the stage for two centuries of conflict and struggle in the Middle East, which is where this is leading to. Uh, it is these two kingdoms, one north of Jerusalem and the other south, that Daniel 11 primarily focuses on in the next several verses. So we'll get into more of that uh, tomorrow because there's more to talk about there. But that's all this uh, uh, history is leading to this king of the north and king of the south, which I think people are, if they, if they know much about Bible prophecy, are very familiar with. And that's that principle of duality as well. It happened thousands of years ago with the king of the north and the king of the south, and then it's happening again. So when that first iteration of the prophecy is fulfilled, you can also know that the second version is going to come as well. So, really great book. You check it out at thetrumpet.com. We're just touching some of the uh, high spots, but there's a lot to look at there and to study. Um, and that is History and Prophecy of the Middle East. 
You can find that there at the uh, trumpet.com. Also, speaking of the trumpet.com, make sure you stop and check that out today for the top story, which is Shinzo Abe, Media Muzzler by Jeremiah Jacques. Uh, Article 21 of Japan's Constitution ensures freedom of speech, press, and all other forms of expression and specifically prohibits censorship, but under uh, under the current leader, their media freedoms for Asia's richest democracy are vanishing. So that's what happens when people uh, get a real grip on power. They start taking away the freedoms of the people, and that's going on over there in Japan. Yeah, that's that's too bad. I, I thought he was a pretty impressive leader for a while, but it's, it's easy to uh, steal power like that. He is slowly altering the Constitution as well to make sure that he's allowed to use his military more effectively. Check that out at the uh, trumpet.com. That's the uh, top story there today. That is all the time we have for today on this edition of Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday. For Grant Turgeon and myself, Dwight Folk, have a great rest of your day, and we will talk to you again tomorrow. Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG.